0: hello and welcome to the antifada where unrest is best with caveats perhaps we'll discuss some of them today um it's a jamie solo episode today in that sean and andy are not here however i am not here by myself i am here with friend of the show and returning champion gio mar the artist formerly known as george Chicarello mar what's up george how you doing
1: not a whole lot super glad to be here
0: awesome and we are talking about uh your new book i should mention it is called a world without police how strong communities make cops obsolete out now on verso books there we go that's all the information that i needed to front load (laughs) so how are you doing these days george are you uh staying out of trouble getting any more any more white genocide controversies
1: that's always a sort of relative statement but you know things have been a little quieter lately certainly
0: yeah you're teaching at vassar now that seems like a very chill place to be
1: super chill super relaxed super smart kids um and you know the way the zoomers are these days um you know everything is really up for grabs and they're ready to burn things down you know that
0: Oh, hell yeah. You know, I've I've really heard a lot of mixed things about the Zoomers. Like, I feel like maybe there is uh, a tendency to perhaps idealize them on the part of people who are old and tired. Like, yeah, they're going to save us. Don't worry about it. And other people like, no, college kids are fucking idiots. And that's still true. Like, uh, maybe it's a dialectic. I don't know.
1: Yeah, maybe something like that. But man, if you were out here in Philadelphia one year ago... When things were getting burned down, you know, when the city was in full rebellion, you know, it, I mean, it's just it, it was really absolutely undeniable how the spearhead of that rebellion was people between 18 and 20 years old at that point. Um, they knew the
0: rebellion is happening.
1: Yeah, they knew who I mean, they knew who the enemy was. They knew and they ended up burning six police cars in the center of Philadelphia and ended up being a, an incredibly strong show of resistance. And again, the leaders were not the established organizations. They weren't the, you know, the intellectuals. They certainly weren't the, the old heads. They were young people who, who are increasingly like just less emotionally tied to a system that they know doesn't help them, right? That, that is promising them very, very little.
0: Hell yeah. I mean... It makes sense after seeing the millennials struggle and get so much shit for it. Like nobody likes us and we're trying so hard and we're so broke and we're not even eating that much avocado toast, really. Uh, makes sense for them to look at that and be like, you know what? We're not even going to play this game. We don't care what old people think of us. We're just going to do our thing.
1: Yeah, I don't really. I still don't understand the whole millennials versus Zoomers thing because I think it's it's a progressive disillusionment with the you know with the old world. But um, you know, I guess uh, you know there's something about millennials still trying to cling on to something. I guess that people are trying to argue. But anyway, I'm not seeing Zoomers. Uh, I'm not seeing that in Zoomers at all. But and, and you know, my students are just great and some of the smartest kids I've ever seen. So certainly smarter than I was as an undergrad.
0: Hell yeah! You heard it here first, folks. Zoomers are based. Um, did you see the, uh, the Z Belgian was one of the scenarios that the, uh, the government, I forget what branch of like the national security apparatus was going through as like a possible scenario that they were going to have to like put down an insurrection.
1: I did not. That does not surprise me at all though.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, maybe they were right. Um, before we get into our talk on abolition, I wanted to pose a little question from one of our reply guys on the last episode we did on Venezuela. Because the last time we had you on, we were talking about Venezuela. uh, As you recall, we were at a party. Perhaps we should have brought you to the studio. I was a little frustrated at all the fucking background noise (laughs) and drunk people uh, on that one. But um, we did another episode recently on Venezuela with my comrade Marvin Gonzalez about his trip to Venezuela Mm -hmm. as part of the DSA International Committee delegation. Um, And we got a comment from our very polite anarchist reply guy. So be nice. He's nice. Um, But he he had a question about the communes. And I was wondering if you could address it. He said, quote, the idea that the communes are genuinely forms of popular power, which are antagonistic to the state. Parentheses. The contradiction of state supported dual power is not reckoned with here. Close parentheses. Isn't borne out by the facts as far as I'm aware. The chapters on Venezuela from Ebb of the Pink Tide by Gonzalez are very good on this. What do you say to that?
1: Well, I wouldn't I mean, I'll be perfectly clear. I wouldn't read Gonzalez on much of anything. Um, The but the, the question is a good one. Right. It's a suspicion that I think is a very real one. Honestly, deep down, this is related to, I think, what we're going to talk about in terms of the police as well. Um, But it would be, you know, like, uh, I get it, you know, from a distance, it's hard to say, but you would have to really try to explain that to people in the communes who confront the state every day, who confront elected officials every day, governors, um, you know, municipal mayors every day, and who need to struggle against them. And, you know, ultimately if the communes are going to survive, displace them. So, I mean, the conflict on the ground is a direct one. Whether you think that, you know, on the whole and the constellation of forces is one that favors the state or favors the more grassroots elements of the communes, that's a question, right? That's a real kind of material question. But the conflict is there. And certainly the state in its own tendencies, you know, prefers communes that are docile, that don't resist state power, even though there are elements within the state that really reinforce, and this is what Chavez did systematically, is to reinforce grassroots power, even when it was antagonistic to the state. Um, you know, th- there, are, there are elements within the state that would prefer that, but that's really not the reality for many communes. I think there's a lot you can say about the communes. Are they big enough? Are they strong enough? Are they you know, really capable of providing an alternative to the existing state? Um, those are all real questions, but, you know, the but the, their antagonism to, you know, to that state has been clear. And that's why they're on a constant, you know, uh, they're, they're constantly fighting a, a war on two fronts against the state and against the right, um, or against the ways in which the right and the state are the same thing.
0: That makes sense. And to be clear, we're talking about Mike Gonzalez here, who wrote a book that sounds interesting, but perhaps I won't read it. Um,
1: no, it's just like his, his takes on, on Venezuela have been kind of systematically wooden and one sided. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's the way that a certain kind of Trotskyism plays out in, in terms of international affairs. And that's not a dishonor all Trotsky, you know, all Trotskyites, or all Trotskyisms. but but uh, you know, but the, the idea that a hyper critique is a substitute for a revolutionary process is not one that I find very convincing.
0: Fair enough. Well, I'm satisfied with that answer. I'm sure that our anarchist reply guy will have some more things to say about that, but we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. So Back to the subject at hand, although I realize it's all connected. Um, Why did you decide to write this book on prison and police abolition right now in this moment?
1: Um, I mean, I've been organizing against the police for more than a decade now, you know, and it's been things, you know, something I've written shorter pieces on. I used to write for Counterpunch all the time on, you know, on police brutality in Oakland in particular uh, and later in Philadelphia um, and was actually planning this specific book for a few years now and trying to work out what it would look like. Um, it got delayed, it got derailed. It was a part of this you know process of being sort of thrown out of the academic world and, and trying to you know write a book uh, that would have more legs um, in you know in a public arena. But the good thing about all that is that it got, it got delayed just enough so that I was able to write it you know, as a contribution on the basis of the George Floyd rebellions. In other words, from a position, an advanced position within what has been an escalating cycle of resistance and rebellion that goes back more than a decade, um, you know, in in the US in particular, back to Oscar Grant, and certainly back to Ferguson and Baltimore, um, and writing it, you know, in, in the year 2021 is very different, I think, from, uh, you know, from a book that would have been written for even four years ago. Um, and so, uh, you know, I hope that it reads as something that seeks a foothold in the struggle at a certain position in which, to be very clear, the difference is that abolition is on the agenda. Abolition is in the mainstream as a question, at the very least, to be to be struggled with, because a few years ago it would have been, uh, you know, the posing of a question um, that is not yet sort of been placed on the agenda. What puts it on the agenda? Of course, mass struggle. Right. It's people in the streets that one year ago made it mandatory that we talk about at the very least defunding, but also uh, dismantling the police, you know, in Minneapolis and beyond.
0: Yeah, it's crazy to me. I mean, you've been on the left longer than I have, but I've certainly been a leftist since, um, I don't know, at least Occupy. It's crazy to me after kind of bashing my head against the wall, trying to get people to listen to me about these things for years and years, that suddenly it's something that people have to pay attention to, even like left liberals, you know? Yeah. Again,
1: I mean, after Ferguson and Baltimore, it was like, okay, now BLM is taken seriously, right? Now this movement that has been making demands, that has been putting... Uh, you know, uh, insisting, you know, on taking these questions seriously of white supremacy and police brutality. It was the rebellions that put that on the agenda. Right. Mm-hmm. And and then three or four years later, you know, and there are organizers who said this in Minneapolis. They said, listen, when Jamar Clark was killed, we knew what the problem was. And now we know what the solution is. Right. This is what, you know, yeah. people have even said on the basis of those troubles, because there's a concrete demand. There's a concrete path. Um, and it's a path that also has been, you know, it was paved by, prison abolitionist organizers who laid out a very clear method for making those demands, pushing them and shifting, turning the tide of public discourse in a very effective way.
0: Yeah. Word. So I guess maybe I want to back up a little bit and cover some of the history that you talk about in your book. There's so much here. Um, We're not going to get to everything and that's all right. We'll have to have you back. Um, So, okay. You wrote, when it came to reconstruction, um, the South sort of lost the battle, I guess the battle being the Civil War, but won the war in general and that black people were placed right back at the bottom of this social hierarchy that we have. Um, in, in what how did that happen? In what ways did that occur?
1: Well, I think the main way, you know, there's the concrete answer and then there's the the, the question, of what does that mean for the overall trajectory? Um, concretely, I, I mean, people were making and the right demands for a brand new kind of society back then, right? In the aftermath of slavery, um, demanding more than just the vote, demanding access to material redistribution, a new structure of the economy, um, new system of education. Much of that was actually embodied in the program of radical reconstruction, right? In other words, when, um, you know, former slaves took control of several States and, you know, pushed through really what was the most radical agenda for change that we have ever really seen in this country on that level. Um, what happened concretely was that the vote was not enough, right? Political, um, you know, rights, um, suffrage was not enough to fight back against white supremacist terror, and uh, in the end, the Klan uh, essentially became the response um, and beat back the, the black vote, leading to and, and ushering in black codes, ultimately Jim Crow. Conceptually, and I think this is really where abolitionism today builds on the legacies of abolitionism past. It was always a question of building, you know, we've heard much of this from Mariam Kava, Ruthie Wilson-Gilmore, from Angela Davis and Robin Kelly and others, is that abolition is not simply abolition, it's always also reconstruction, right? You're dismantling, you're tearing down institutions, but you're building new alternatives and ultimately building a new kind of society. And looking back, you know, you see the failure of that, right? The failure to reconstruct the economy means that people are trapped in a new system of sharecropping and debt peonage. Um, The failure to, uh, you know, enforce those political rights and that political equality and push back white supremacy leads to the criminalization of blackness. convict leasing and eventually mass incarceration so what we got was the police and in prisons instead of actual abolition and reconstruction and so that's why the waves of abolition continue to make in some ways the same kind of demands right which is that and this is where Angela Davis's concept of the you know of making prisons obsolete is one that applies to the police as well um, and what it points toward is the fact that listen you, you as long as you have a society built on inequality racial inequality gendered and economic inequality, someone's going to need to protect those inequalities, right? Patrol them, guard them. And that someone is going to be the police of some, you know, of some kind. And so you can't really fully abolish the police and prisons without rebuilding an alternative form of living.
0: Yeah. Yeah, Word. So that answers a whole bunch of my other questions, actually, but I'm going to fast forward a little to the 1990s when, you know, I guess people have different takes on the crime wave of the 1970s, which was a real thing. Um, But regardless of what you think about that or how to deal with it, crime started to fall again in the 1990s. And yet, Police budgets continued to rise, and mass incarceration continued to pace with the Crime Bill of 1994 and other very punitive measures um, pushed through by Democrats. Um, why? Why did this happen? Why this approach?
1: I mean, I, I think you're right. There's no real consensus on what actually explains the ups and downs of you know so-called violent crime during this period. It's totally clear, though, that. There's no connection between crime and mass incarceration, no connection between crime and policing levels. And you're right that it's in the 90s that this becomes perfectly clear, because as policing and mass incarceration take off, crime rates uh, drop, but not in a causal way. They're already dropping. They're already going down. And there's no connection, certainly from there, um, from there on. Um, What does continue is the panic. right? What does continue is the racialized fear. Um, the narratives that we've been rehashing, obviously, recently about super predators, about you know the demonization of the inner city, the sort of imaginary you know crack you know epidemic. Um, again, not that there was you know that it was entirely imaginary, but the fact that it was constructed as a kind of myth to justify the most repressive um, measures and the most you know profound racial demonization. Um, you know, this is what characterizes the 1990s, and of course, this is also the moment where, someone like Yangi Amato Taylor shows really well. It's the moment where Republican strategies um, for using tough on crime, you know, uh, language and rhetoric for political leverage, um, it's the moment in which the the Democrats embrace that too, right? So we've got the real duopoly of, uh, you know, of tough on crime hitting in the 90s and at the expense of hundreds of thousands of people uh, in jail, in the system. And, you know, ultimately, when when you begin to understand how these things work, that means, uh, making us all much, much less safe as well, making communities much less egalitarian, um, you know, deepening inequalities, of course, the imposition of neoliberal economics at that same moment um, and the, you know, in the real devastation that's been wrought as a result. Um, so, you know, this trajectory is an incredibly... Um, powerful one. And it's one that we've seen shaken, you know, shaken a bit recently, right? We've seen even within the Democratic Party, you know, the ability to maybe drive a wedge. We've seen a different uh, coalition, uh, correlation of forces on a global level, you know, waves of resistance against neoliberalism, um, which are also part of this broader uh, world uh, uh, without police and world without imperialism as well.
0: So what do you make of the idea that uh, a lot of communities of color were asking for more policing uh, in in various different ways. I mean, I, I know that isn't the only thing that they were asking for, but it's the only thing they got. Um, And and this still holds true today. Like there was a an article by Ross Barkin that I thought was kind of dumb because I really read it as an attack on abolitionist politics. I don't know if you saw it, but but basically saying we need to reckon with the fact that a lot of working class uh, people of color, specifically black people Mm -hmm. um, in this city voted for Eric Adams and they do not support defunding the police or or. Yeah. Let alone abolition. Like, how do how do we deal with that? You know, as 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 white abolitionists, uh, yeah, is, sure. this charge they were telling people of color who may not agree with us what's best for them. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. I mean, the first thing, first things first is that like anyone can be wrong. The community can be wrong. The community can vote for its own, you know, oppression and repression. In fact, white communities do it all the time. Right. That's literally the story of what we're going through today um, is, you know, white, poor white communities dying of opioids and still voting for Trump. Right. Um, So, you know, as a, as a baseline, that's that's totally possible. However, the debate has been, and it's a much longer debate. You know, has been uh, super complex about these questions, right? You know, there's the argument that on the one hand, um, you know, as Foreman puts it, locking up our own, right? You know, that that black communities played a, ma- a major role in doing so, um, and this has been uh, the argument for a while. At the same time, I think we need to be a little more nuanced. And Elizabeth Hinton's new book has some stuff, uh, you know, about. You know, about the ways in which, you know, we shouldn't flatten the community either. Right. Because when you're talking about and saying like, uh, you know, black political leaders and church leaders, for example, were conscripted into the democratic program of mass incarceration and policing. um, On the one hand, even those political leaders, church leaders were asking for more right? We're asking for social welfare, we're asking for community funding, um, but also importantly that these uh, that those leaders didn't necessarily reflect the entirety of the community, right? And more radical voices were systematically uh, shunned and silenced. Um, so I, I think we need to understand that communities, poor communities, communities of color are uh, you know are fractured and fragmented and sort of dialectically complex, right they think and want different things at the same time, many of those things um, can be pointed and do point in abolitionist directions right if you if understood correctly and certainly, if the question is more community funding, right, very few people would say no we don't need." Um, more social welfare funding. No, we don't need uh, after-school activities for, you know, for kids, or we don't need the pools to be open in the summer. I mean, there's a consensus that those things are part of it. And the question is, how do you then build a movement that demands uh, defunding as a strategy for fully funding uh, communities?
0: Yeah. So let's, let's talk about that defund refund idea, because there has been a bit of a debate on this show And in my own brain about uh, the idea of non-reformist or abolitionist reforms, right? Because some people think that's a contradiction of terms. Like we've had on people from the defund campaign to really mount a defense of it from a communist perspective. And we've had on uh, people that... Would probably not be mad if I described them as ultras, uh, yeah, like our sure. friends Arturo and Shimon and Jared and Zana, who really don't believe that anything incremental is going to make a difference. And I, mm. I can see it from both sides, right? Yeah. Because, you know, like, okay, if anything short of the revolution isn't going to do shit, Um, like what the fuck are we supposed to do right now? Um, on the other hand, I, I do know that other parts of the state, even if they might be better in some ways than the part that just exists to kill and depress people are also very carceral in nature, thinking about education, thinking about social work and welfare and all the ways that these are also used to police the lives of the poor. So uh, where do you come down in this debate?
1: Yeah, and I think there's a lot of you know there's a lot of pieces here. The the first caveat, of course, is the fact that the term defunding has been abused by city administrations. Right in Philadelphia, they moved parking uh, enforcement. Out of the line, the budget line of the police and said that they were defunding, but they hadn't actually changed anything. Right. Other cities have engaged in similarly kind of misleading defunding campaigns. Um, at the same time, I think we need to be open to, uh, a, a, you know, an understanding of what non-reformist reforms look like and why they're good. Right. Um, I think, you know, and, you know, Maram Kaba for of course has put out, you know, a good, you know, framework for thinking through non-reformist reforms. And it's not about shifting, you know, funds to other parts of the state. It's mostly about withdrawing, right? And this was even before the defunding stuff was really on the on the horizon. So, you know, basically like reforms that pull the police out of communities, right? Reforms that limit what the police are doing in their engagement with the communities and reduce interaction between community members and the police um, are things that we can support. Reforms that, you know, force the police, you know, to be on the defensive, whether it's in terms of like having their own uh, liability insurance and other things are, you know, reforms we should support. And the most powerful, I think, distinction then is that, you know, the, is about the reforms that clearly we don't support, right? Body cameras, technological fixes, increased training, increased funding. I think that's really where a lot of our You know, emphasis uh, and energy needs to be put is shutting down those reforms that expand police power, right? Um, And, you know, I think according to those rough parameters, that's, you know, no, I, I fall more or less in the same position. But I think we do, and I think we do need to be very aware of the fact that as, you know, people like Dorothy Roberts, you know, you know, responded very clearly to, you know, this sort of easy, you know, uh, statements at the beginning of the rebellions that, well, you know, we need to defund the police and fund social welfare or fund uh, social programs or fund, you know, like, uh, you know, essentially the so- social welfare, social work apparatus. And, you know, a lot of that is carceral. A lot of that is part of, of policing and part of the state in, in a particularly sharp racialized form. So it doesn't mean channeling money into CPS, right? It doesn't mean channeling money into schools that haven't been changed to be less of the prisons that they are right um and so i think those things are you know essential to keep in mind but if we're talking about something like the cahoot's uh model of 911 response which is not run by the state right which um diverts 911 calls for mental health emergencies to uh you know to crisis experts uh you know who act as first responders that's absolutely useful and incredibly useful and the experiments that have been done with that model have shown that literally what it means is tens of thousands of you know uh incidents in a year not going to the police, right? Um, Overall, though, I think the key to, you know, thinking through, you know, reforms versus sort of revolutionary measures has to do also with how we imagine and how we envision a new kind of world. And not just us, right, the left, but how we can make this into a mass, you know, mass horizon, a mass phenomenon. And that's where the potential of defunding, I think, is key, because what you're doing is you're withdrawing huge amounts of money, ideally, from policing, putting it into other elements of, uh, you know, building an egalitarian society and being able to point to that and say, look, like your life has not gotten worse. Y- your life is not more dangerous. Your community is actually stronger than it's ever be- been before. And I think that is the real practical bridge. Um, of course, it's very difficult. And these kind of reforms are always a question of kind of fighting off, uh, you know, the the attempts to co-opt them on all sides at the same time that we need to understand that the bridge toward abolition, needs to be a practical bridge, right? It can't be just an ethics, it can't be just a, a rhetorical uh, bridge about an imaginary future, but a recognition of the ways in which that future is being built already.
0: Yeah, well, I think my pendulum has just swung back over to your side of this debate. Uh, I'm sure I'll have some ultras on really soon, and they'll convince me the other way. But um Make that makes a lot of sense. And like, like what the fuck else are we supposed to be doing right now? Like the exactly. revolution yeah. is not yet happening. Uh, I don't but think we're like, in a place you, where we can make it happen.
1: But also, like, we and this is part of the what I hope is the is a major takeaway of this book is that policing is so central to the United States, to our society, to American history. Um and that makes it very daunting. The idea of abolishing or even just rolling back police power. But that's part of why, you know, we see even small changes creating such a severe reaction, right? Mm -hmm. And provoking such a panic on the right. Um, And provoking the police to be even more aggressive and even more racist and to really out themselves as open fascists and demand Trump, you know, have a second term. And that's part of these dialectics that we're that we're going to be engaging. Right. Right. Is the question that, like, if they hate it that much, you know, part of it is because there's a reason and because even small changes can provoke much broader chain reactions.
0: Yeah, yeah, I was gonna ask you about that. Like even something that really doesn't do much of anything at all, like body cameras, they get they throw a fucking temper tantrum. Are the cops temper tantrums over even like bullshit reforms that aren't going to do anything? Are those evidence that those reforms actually do matter? Or is it just them being little piss babies?
1: Yeah, no, I mean, that's a, that's a really good example of the fact that them being mad is is not a, a sufficient <laughs> indication that the reforms matter, right? Because, you know, you've always got this these temper tantrums, uh, precisely because the police want more and more and more impunity, right? They want absolute impunity. And also because you've got a gap between like, you know, police rank and file, union leadership, so-called union leadership, I should say, um, and leadership, city officials, police commissioners, right? Where you know, where the it's the political leadership that that wants these sort of uh, reforms, technological reforms. You know, uh, and it's the rank and file that you know again throw throw PC fits whenever they get you know a, a chance. So it's not enough, right? We do have to look at the reforms because, put you know, again, body cameras don't help. They they actually, in the long run, um, make policing uh, you know more. Effective in its, you know, task of white supremacy and you know upholding uh, capital. So that's not enough. We need to look, you know, more closely at the reforms. But it does indicate, you know, the kind of reactions that you're going to get right constantly for even the smallest things. And that is part of this broader, uh, you know, broader dynamic, right? By that I mean the fact that, you know, you know, policing is even more out of pocket today, right? Because police feel like they're on the defensive because they're You know, feeling resentful and frustrated. And so they're embracing, you know, white supremacy even more aggressively in some cases than they were before, um, because they feel like everyone's out to get them because the city officials are against them and they're flailing and they're reacting. And that reaction in some ways is a good thing. Right. That's part of what we helped to provoke on the streets in Philadelphia. And it helped to really embarrass the police commissioner. Um and it just encourages the fraternal order of police to do what they do, which is to be even more uh, openly fascist and to refuse all all change.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I I mean I should say that I am convinced that these uh non reformist reforms that we're talking about would be a good thing objectively. Um, like I recently had a personal experience with a friend who was suicidal. and I had to make my friends and I had to make this decision uh, as to whether to call nine one one. And I called them and I asked, is there an option where you don't send the cops? This guy is not dangerous to anyone but himself. You do not need we do not need cops here. They are not yeah. going to make it better. And they said no. So I fucking yeah. I fucking had to do it. And luckily, the cops were a pretty benign presence in this situation, which is really the best you could ever ask of them. But like it like it could have it could have gone badly. Like, I don't know. Like, I've read so many I've read about so many things where uh, somebody with mental health problems, mm-hmm. some, you know, they someone called 911, try to help them. And the cops fucking shot them and yeah. killed them. No, the
1: reality, again, like this is established, right? The, The reality is that they are 17 times more likely to kill someone who's having a mental health crisis, right? We're talking huge, really unimaginable numbers. And it's because, I mean, as Alex Vitale has made this argument over and over again, which is that like, they are not mental health experts, not to say that all mental health experts are good, but they bring one uh, tool to to the situation right which is violence there are violence workers they do violence they show up and the only tool that they want to use is violence the only tool they're trained to use is violence for the most part and you know and so that's what they do we should not be surprised when that's how they react right yeah. um you know we had the situation in the middle of the rebellions you know last october right down the street from from where we live where walter wallace jr was killed and again he was a he was in a crisis. His mom was trying to deescalate it. His neighbors were certainly annoyed and maybe a little worried, but not one of them thought that deadly force was necessary right? Not one of them thought that that was you know the the proper response and they did not even want the police to come at all um and the police were called by someone else and you know and you know and killed him um this is but this is commonplace and, and so it's very difficult again, and it's like you know like I'm an ultra too, but um, at the same time, just to dismiss something like 911 uh, diversion away from the police as too reformist, I, you know, strikes me as absurd yeah. because you're talking about, again, not only something that makes a material contribution to a, a better life and a safer life for many people, that, that would be enough. But on top of that, it shows us that we don't need the police. It shows us that there's different ways to organize society. And that's the real key.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that that was really going to be my next question. Like I I believe in all these things on their own merits, but how do they fit in to a revolutionary communist program? How do they move us closer mm-hmm. to to the world that we want to see and not just, you know, a slightly less shitty version of the world that yeah. we have now?
1: So, you know, when I when I started doing anti-police organizing, I was in an organization called Bring the Ruckus. Um, And that was a sort of anarchist communist organization um, that was dedicated to fighting white supremacy and building dual power. What that meant was building alternatives, creating the basis for communities to uh, fight back and resist, and ultimately building a a revolution based on fighting against white supremacy. Um, The vision, you know, is one that holds today, which is that white supremacy, it plays a key role in preventing revolutionary change in the united states in particular but also of course uh, globally again when you talk about the origins of police and you go back to Du Bois' black reconstruction we're talking about the abolition of slavery the creation of police um, as the upholders and as embodying white supremacy um, and embodying the division of the working class and the poor that white supremacy uh, entails Um, what does that mean it means that white supremacy plays a central role in dividing workers against each other and preventing the unification of that class struggle. And so anything that you can do to fight white supremacy, to, to beat back the power of race, um, is something that allows for the coalescence of broader struggle. You know, and so anything you can do to fight back uh, the power of white supremacy is is a contribution to the class struggle. It's a contribution to broader revolutionary struggles. And the police, not only are they upholders of white supremacy every day in practice, but they are also the enemies of the working class, the organized strike breakers. They are the you know the force that upholds economic inequality as well. You fight both of those uh, you know structures with when you fight policing, when you roll back police power, you create space for communities and for workers and working class communities in particular to come together and organize themselves, right? To organize this different kind of society, to organize it in struggle. And that's why I talk in the book, there's a whole chapter on on global struggles, Um, but it's also about the question of self-defense and the fact that, listen, if we're talking about building a community without police, we also really need to you know, we can't just ignore the question of what that community would look like or how it defends itself. We need to engage in these difficult questions of the history of armed self-defense as a history of struggles against policing as well.
0: Yeah. yeah so I saw some I, I read about some really inspiring examples of that in your book. Are. Um, what are what are some of your favorite examples that you've seen of people building this kind of world of collective care, um, where police are obsolete under under very difficult circumstances? Might I add, um, in in our world today?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I was, I mean, I was, uh, you know doing a lot of work on Venezuela and living in Oakland. And so, as I talk about in the book, going back and forth and and studying communities without police in Venezuela, self-defended communities that, you know, where communities got together, took up arms and drove out the police and narco traffic at the same time, right? It was the same gesture, liberating their community from both. Um, And and built self-defense movements for governing those territories, for making them safer, you know, for, you know, creating the context in which people could really, uh, you know, enjoy their communities and live a fuller life. At the same time that I'm I'm sort of like researching this in Venezuela, I'm also engaged in anti-police movements in in Oakland in particular, and, and it always struck me that the questions are really the same. Right. The questions have to do with, uh, you know, pushing out the police, building different kinds of structures and thinking about what those structures look like, which is why the Black Panther Party in Oakland was called the Black Panther Party of self-defense. Right. Um, you're not, not an abstract question of self-defense, but a grounded question of defending the community itself from policing, but also, you know, as the Panthers, of course, did, you know, walking older people uh, to and from the bus station to make sure that they are safe, right, that they can be safe in the streets. Um, And these are two, in in some ways, two sides of the same coin. And so Venezuela, you know, I talk about Mexican experiments in self-defense. I talk about um, some of the experiments taken in the late kind of Irish struggle, um, experiments of street committees that developed in South Africa at one point, you know, and a lot of these experiments are, you know, you know, characterized by frustration and failure, right? But that doesn't mean the experiments are not crucial for us to understand what a truly revolutionary notion of self-defense without the police would look like.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think this dovetails with another thing that I wanted to ask you, which is another sort of live debate going on between uh, more, shall we say, orthodox kinds of communists and more, shall we say, anarchist-adjacent kinds, which is to say... Um what do what do we make of actually existing socialist states and their failure as of yet to mm-hmm. abolish police and prisons how do we how do we reckon with that does it make sense for communists and abolitionists to call for a worker state that has police and prisons knowing that it might never mm-hmm. transcend to the yeah. next phase. Uh, Like I've heard people dismiss the protesters complaints about police repression in Hong Kong as imperialist whining that has nothing to do Mm -hmm. with our movement. And it just feels a little bit uh, reductive to me. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Um, And I think, you know, honestly, it's a good question. It cuts right to the heart of what does abolitionism mean? Um, and, And I think there's a reckoning. I mean, maybe we can delay the reckoning, but in some ways we might be better for it um within abolitionism over this question. Um, um it has to do with how how we understand abolitionism and how it relates to a longer process of transition, um what that looks like. Uh you know, I'm very much a, you know, uh someone with anarchist sympathies, but definitely, you know, in the vein of understanding like the transition to socialism is one of the withering away of the state. Um, but that is nevertheless a really ferocious struggle, right? Like that our enemies are not going to give up easily. Um, And that's precisely why someone like Lenin would talk about, you know, the dictatorship of the proletariat as this transitional uh, in-between sort of state that involves a reversal of the, you know, the violent repression, you know, of of the state against the wealthy, against the powerful um, as a means for creating the basis for, again, these structures to be obsolete, right? Until we build a new kind of society, um, we're going to have police in prisons as well. Um, and one of the questions is, how do we get there? And is it possible to get there without, uh, you know, because sometimes it really feels like, um, you know, defeating our enemies in battle, which is a good thing, is being per- portrayed as somehow punitive. And it was like, yes, of course it's punitive, right? Like capitalists should not exist. White supremacists need to disappear, right? Like it's not punitive to say that. It's literally a statement on the need for struggle, um, and and the need to win that struggle. Now I could talk extensively about Venezuela, for example, where an incredibly important experiment is still playing out, although it's in very very you know difficult stages right now. Um, in which, uh, you know, of course, there are still police, you know, uh, of course, there's still prisons. um, But there's a lot to be said about what's been going on in those prisons and what's been going on in the police. Um, There was an attempt to reform the Venezuelan police that was incredibly admirable in certain ways, but also really doomed to failure, because this, you know, the police still ended up being uh, kind of like the police, (laughs) you know, it's like, you don't. So yeah, I mean, on the one hand, you've got the sort of a, the, you know, the hyper-tanky line of like, no, these are automatically uh, liberators and protectors of the people is, is not true. Um, but then again, the anarchist line that says that they're exactly the same as all other police by definition isn't exactly holding water either as part of a process. Um, we need to understand, I think, that these things are, are, are far more uh, complicated in practice. And we need to understand, as I think a lot of great abolitionists do, that revolutionary movements need to be centered here as well right, over and above, um, you know, abstract language about abolition, you know, because this is part of a broad process. It's part of winning a war, right? Um, abolition, the abolition of slavery was an incredibly violent and yes, let's call it punitive affair, right? It involved the military occupation of the South by the U.S. Army, um, which of course could be seen to be upholding, you know, for the, you know the, the violent structures of the state, but it was also absolutely necessary for abolition to happen and for the deepening of Reconstruction to be a possibility, and so until we've really grappled, I think, with that question of transition, um, where, you know, we haven't gotten far enough.
0: That's a very even handed answer. And I agree with you. It's this shit is complicated, you know, um, man. Uh, but but something you said reminded me of um, an article that Andy wrote, actually. Um, I forget what the headline was, but he he basically had a bit of a critique of the slogan, We Keep Us Safe, that you know was one of many things that came out of the uprisings last summer. Um, the idea being, of, of course, we want a world where everybody is safe and where everybody takes care of each other. But in order to get to that world, we're actually going to have to pass through some incredibly risky territory and some incredibly dangerous times that will probably be traumatic for everyone involved um, and and take on great personal risk. Um, What do you think about that?
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's a really great point that also dovetails with other, you know, other points that need to be made about, you know, about that, you know, the question of of who keeps us safe. Um, uh, The fundamental starting point is, we also don't want to, is that we can't begin from a perspective that says, you know what, like, you know, we're trying to build a new world, but in the meantime, we need the police. Um, Because that's an error from the start. It, It assumes that the police protect us when they don't, right? It assumes that the police keep poor communities safe when they don't. They keep women safe when they absolutely don't. And so we don't want to fall into that, right? The idea that you know, at the same time, people are going to call the police in the meantime. And and one of the engagements that we need to have on a mass level is around this question of whether or not that's the most effective way to keep people safe. The flip side, I think that you're raising very well is the question of risk, right? Because you do also hear this, right? You have this, hear this argument that like, it's communities, you know, the the most, uh, you know, you know, the communities that suffer the most um, you know, have the mo- You know, are the ones who can't afford abolition. Let's put it that way, or can't afford to defund the police. Um, the poorest communities, the you know, um, you know, women and others, um, by virtue of being, uh, you know, subject to the violence of the system, somehow we're we're expected to believe this argument that um, that they can't afford abolition when the answer is already in the question because these are precisely the communities that are left vulnerable by the police. That are you know that suffer the predation of the police that are systematically harassed and violated by the police, uh, and so I, I do engage that particularly in the international um, sphere, you know, as a sort of way of looking back at the U.S. and, and dismantling this argument that there's no, you know, the argument about risk, um, because uh, you know you've got people saying right, oh, communities of color they need the police, right? And again, first of all, you know, so the police don't protect, you know, those communities. Um, but second of all, it's not hard to look to, you know, places in the U.S., but also places in Mexico or in Venezuela, where it's literally the most dangerous, most violent, most vulnerable communities that are saying enough is enough.
0: Where do I go now? Um, <laughs> You know, I'm going to put my Sean hat on for a second and talk about organized labor because okay. he's question. not here. Um so yeah you make a pretty good case in your book why cop unions should be kicked out of the AFL CIO why mm-hmm. one of these things is not like the others um but then there are critics who think oh well it's it's just going to weaken the power of organized labor at a time when it's already not doing well um what is the cost benefit analysis of that mm-hmm.
1: I mean, and to be clear, uh, you know, it's not even a question of kicking them out of the the mainstream labor federations. You know, police, so called police unions, the fraternal orders, the benevolent societies need to be absolutely obliterated. Um, the they are the spearhead of policing, which is the spearhead of a fascistic view of society that has been pushing us in that direction for decades, if you look at what the police unions argue, what they want, what they hope for, uh, if you look at the fact that they double down on their support for Trump for his re-election, um, and that their concerns extend far beyond policing, uh, you know, that you see that the, the actual political voice of the police is one in which, which points toward a society of permanent hierarchy, inequality, um, and repression, and blind obedience to the law, a law which they themselves break and remake all the time. So, you know, it's, it's really not the case that you could make an argument for keeping police within the labor movement, right? What does more harm to the labor movement? Losing, you know, some members and losing the funding that they have behind them. It's a highly, you know, unionized sector of the working class, of course, or giving white supremacy a, an unquestioned pulpit within the labor movement, right? Because I think that the correct argument and the argument that many people are making is that. When you have police in your unions, what you're telling workers of color, low wage workers, is that they actually don't matter to the movement. When actually it's the opposite, those workers are the future of the labor movement, a large, you know, multiracial, multinational labor movement far beyond our borders um is 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 going to be the future of that labor movement and you're cutting that off at the knees if you're saying and bending over backwards to try to include the worst elements and the most reactionary elements of the so-called labor movement uh within it um ultimately there's no way around this question um because you know, and they're very smart, very good people arguing that we should not pose things in this way, that we should leave aside the police unions because we don't want to strengthen the hand of the right in terms of turning those arguments against uh, teachers' unions and other things. But unless we confront this head on, we're left in a trap. And the trap is this, which is that you cannot confront police power without confronting police unions. You, you simply can't. They negotiate that power on a local level with binding arbitration, uh, you know, negotiating with local officials and enforcing. Um, their power on a local level. Um, They lobby for and, you know, achieve new legislation on the state level, you know, specifically Law Enforcement Bill of Rights, which make it almost impossible to even hold any police accountable for the most, you know, egregious violations. Um, And on a national level, they, they of course, you know, contribute to and play a huge role in this far-right movement um, that's been, you know, of course, running amok, um, in, in, in recent years, there's no way around this. They are the basis, the the sort of spinal column of police power and that that, that spine needs to be broken.
0: Yeah. yeah, word. I agree with all of that. I might even link an article that Alex Press wrote a few years back, I think around the time of the Danny Fatante uh, curveball. Yeah. Well, I don't know. What That's do I call article. that? Yeah. The, the Danny Fadante thing, the Danny Fadante embarrassment when uh, yes. I guess a former cop union organizer got elected to the uh, National Political Committee of DSA somehow. And she sort of explained why cop unions are not the same thing as other unions. And I thought it was Absolutely. very good.
1: And they've never, not once really stood with any other unions, you know, police unions, you know, they they constantly consistently support right-wing arguments, you know, strategy solutions, whenever the left is under fire, whenever union solidarity is, is sort of like the call of the day, they betray the movement, they police the movement, they repress the movement. um, And they, you know, what they've done from the very beginning is to demand special privileges for themselves, which they can demand because they are, The you know the guardians of the existing order, and and they leverage that position to uh, essentially blackmail uh, you know city administrations into giving them whatever the fuck they
0: want. Who needs them? Uh, We we don't. Oh Fuck. Um, Was I gonna say? Oh yeah. So I think as communists, we're interested in this uh, and all this stuff for pretty obvious reasons. Abolition and communism go hand in hand, and in the United States. I really think that any kind of proletarian uprising or revolution is going to come in through the door of uh, white supremacy and state violence for very material reasons, right? Like it's not, I mean, I'm not, I'm not like a dumb liberal who thinks, Oh, black people are magic. They're going to save us. Like (laughs) people who are racialized as black can are, can be all sorts of different ways and can also be reactionary, but they, they, Occupy a material position in American capitalism that is unique, um, and that's that's the nature of a lot of my interest in this, and also just as someone who you know cares about humanity. Um, but but what would it take to have an uprising like the one we had last summer? Um, what would it take to turn that into a revolutionary scenario with a clear? Anti-capitalist political content.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it, look, it's a great question. Um, I definitely am one of those people who uh, likes to admit that we literally have no fucking idea, you know, what the future looks like. And you know, and the question, strategic question, is really more about pushing in a certain direction, preparing the ground, and seeing what what unfolds. And I also want to, you know, insist and remind people because you know, every ideological structure of society wants us to forget just how wild last summer was, right? Just how many possibilities were opened up, how unprecedented those possibilities were, how quickly rebellion spread from Minneapolis nationwide and beyond, you know, across the world, in fact, um, and how important, you know, these waves are to sustaining a struggle. So, you know, first things first, that was a massive moment where we had, you know, huge uh, possibilities. How does that play out in terms of, you know, uh, longer movements in more revolutionary situations? I mean, it, it, there are a lot of different ways, I think, that that we'll, we're going to see things play out, and they're going to be incredibly complicated. But I think the ways that I would sort of prioritize have everything to do with, since we already brought up the idea of dual power, right, um, have everything to do with the fact that in Minneapolis, people took over security, right? in and around the protest area in the park. Um, they established uh, you know, uh, a communication network of more than 1,000 people, um, a rapid response network to try to keep themselves safe without the police. Now, when you add into the security piece, the economic piece, right, distribution, um, housing, uh, you know, um, connecting, and then, then you're seeing the, the expansion. And again, this is something that you've seen in Venezuela as well, you see the expansion of the ability to sustain something much broader. An alternative fabric, a communal fabric, um, in which uh, you have these self-sustaining structures defending themselves, protecting themselves, feeding themselves, um, and, and trying to turn that into a generalizable phenomenon. But at the same time, it's not simply about the prefiguration because we're also about provoking a symbolic and a political crisis um, in you know, in the broader society that has unforeseen consequences.
0: Yeah, that's that's all very inspiring. I'm going to do what I always do and like make it sad again um, <laughs> and ask, uh, how do we keep these new structures of you know community safety, whatever you want to call them, from falling victim to the same problems yeah. as the police? Like I know the people at the Chaz Chop kind of embarrass all of us when some of these self-appointed guards freaked out and killed people in Seattle. Like, how do we, how do we avoid that?
1: Yeah. I mean, that's one thing that we need to avoid. I think, I mean, I think accidents are also accidents sometimes. Um, But I also think, and and I think the bigger, more systematic question is how do we prevent these from becoming police? Right. Um, And if if we look historically, the main way that, you know, self-defense community, you know, like community watch and these things become the police Is that they fall right back on dividing the community, on identifying threats as those who look like they're not from there, or maybe look like they're too poor, or look like they're homeless, right? Or look like they're drug users or something like that. And using that as a basis to ostracize people from the community. I think that's the the generalized pattern. And that's why Neighborhood Watch in the suburbs is explicitly white supremacist Um, and and about upholding wealth, because it's about rich people keeping the undesirables out. Um, but you do see that reproduced in poorer communities as well. And, and so the struggle needs to be continued and, 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 and you know needs to persist in the sense of refusing solutions that recreate the logic of policing, understanding that everyone is and can be a member of that community and understanding that safety doesn't necessarily rely on identifying people and ostracizing them. Um, it relies on having a fabric of uh, self-defense and security in place um, that is more resilient Um, And that doesn't need to do so uh, in the long run. Ultimately, though, this, you know, again, points toward this question of like, we, you know, insofar as society remains capitalist, remains white supremacist, remains deeply unequal, um, these things will reproduce themselves. Um, And so we have to simultaneously fight against those inequalities as we're building these alternatives.
0: Yeah, word. I mean, I think this is just more evidence that we can't be class reductionists. You know, like Actually, uh, we could—I don't know—we could get single-payer healthcare and still have a healthcare system that's racist. We could, yeah. uh, we could have a, a worker state in some ways, and if we don't fight against everything at once, you know, mm-hmm. all of, all of these oppressive. Uh, these these real abstractions, as I like to call them, uh, it's still not going to be a liberated world.
1: Absolutely. And the reality is we won't even get there because capital will continue to leverage these, you know, you know, white supremacy against workers' power. Um, You know, you know, you, we, the workers' struggles in the 60s and 70s, it was always just riven by these divisions, right? It's like white you know, white uh, workers and union members in particular with a certain level of stability and privilege in the workplace where black workers were easily, you know, were last hired, first fired, right? And until you confront those inequalities head on, you know, capital is just leveraging those. And of course, using uh, workers of color, using, you know, work migrants as, as you know, strike breakers in all, in, in all practical aspects um, because these divisions exist, right? And we haven't talked about, you know, you uh, you know, the, the absurd and embarrassing arguments of people like Angela Nagel when it comes to the international working class, right? Yeah. The idea that somehow closed borders help the working class when closed borders just simply provide another point of leverage for capital to oppress a certain sector and to create docility uh, in another sector at the expense of all workers.
0: Yeah. You know, I go back and forth as to whether I should even dignify arguments like that with a response, because she (laughs) is persona non grata on the left right now. There is basically no part of the left that considers her a comrade anymore.
1: Which is good, you know, which is absolutely necessary. And it's one of those things where you're like, oh, yeah, but even on the left, some people argue this and you're like, okay, I'm glad we're recognizing that that is not a left wing argument. Right? And yeah, no. practice. Yeah.
0: yeah. And we can depersonalize it. Right. Like, I don't care about her yeah. as a human being. I just care about the bullshit that she says. Yeah. Uh, but like, you know, you get that cozy with Tucker Carlson. Yeah. Uh, it's pretty obvious that you are at, at best a, a useful idiot for yeah. the right. And, and it's not and
1: uh, you. It's not uh, you know, I mean, it's no coincidence. Right. It's the same thing. Stephen Miller, you know, and, you know, Stephen Bannon were saying. Um, about, you know, migrants driving down, you know, wages, which is a fucking lie. More interesting than the fact that that's a lie um, is is the fact that it was literally... And word for word, essentially the same argument made about abolishing slavery. Right? Um, these right-wing ideologues were able to convince white workers that freed slaves would be competition and drive their wages down. Right? And mm-hmm. somehow managed to sort of, con- you know, hide and conceal through through some sleight of hand the fact that it was the system of slavery that was driving wages down more than any freed labor competition. Right? Yeah. And that by abolishing a system which has people working for close to zero all wages, you know, you know, would have increased Um, the same exact argument and the same obfuscation is what happens today. And and it's just unfortunate that people go in for it. Du Bois and Black Reconstruction was arguing against that same exact argument today. And it's it can be used against, you know, on, on the question of migration as well.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I get comments on some of my videos still, people saying, oh, well, don't you think the working class of this country should control the supply of labor? And it drives me insane because I don't know how many people really believe this. I don't know how much I should be addressing it, but like, no, like we had an episode where we had on uh, Justin Acres Stracon, uh, a labor historian, yes, to talk specifically about The struggle for workers' rights and how it has actually been strengthened any time the workers' movement in the United States included and incorporated people coming from other countries, especially in Latin America, It, it only made them stronger.
1: Yeah, no, I mean and, you know, my dog is barking so you're going to hear that, but it's all good. Um the you know, if the two biggest labor, you know, moments of labor struggle and labor resistance in United States history, both of them are written out of the labor movement, right? What is the first? The general strike of abolition when slaves walked off of plantations in the hundreds of thousands. And what was the second? The the mass, you know, migrant May 1st strikes just a few years ago, right? the labor movement and many on the left don't pay enough attention to the fact that that was the embodiment of a mass transnational labor movement that is systematically excluded from these kind of arguments.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Word. And I, I will put a link to those episodes too. Why not? Folks should listen to them. Um, okay. As we wind things down a little bit, um, your last chapter is called democracy or the police. Um, how does abolition dovetail with a deepening of democracy? in your mind.
1: Yeah, no, and I think this is a complicated argument, particularly in the sense that, like, I think a lot of us don't necessarily have a particularly, you know, positive view of of what democracy means or could be. But to be perfectly clear, you know, I'm not most concerned with the kind of bullshit shell of of a democratic system that we claim to have in this country. That's not the question. The question is what Du Bois refers to as abolition democracy, which is a particularly expansive form of democracy, essentially, what what he argued was that something qualitative happens after the abolition of slavery. When you push back white supremacy, when more people are participating in politics, um, something happens that exceeds just the kind of the numerical shift of like uh, you know suddenly this many former slaves now can vote, right? He, you know, he makes the argument that it transforms a very understanding of politics, of democracy, and by, by bringing sort of the most excluded and the most oppressed into a political system, um, the transformative impact is really uh, kind of profound. So that is the starting point for the kind of vision of democracy, I think, um, that we can hang on to, right, which is a transformative vision in which, again, the most excluded, the most oppressed, uh, you know, uh, segments of society um, are able to have a transformative impact These things are crucial, right? In a moment of mass disenfranchisement of, you know, a moment in which millions and millions of people are still, you know, felon, you know, former felons in particular, um, disenfranchised, unable to participate and in which states are actively trying to roll that back. Um, you know, these things are crucial, but it's, it's particularly crucial when you think of the police and understand the police as a radically anti-democratic force, um, you know, you can point to a million examples. Uh, you know, one that I return to repeatedly in the book, um, you know, is the the uh, behavior of the NYPD um, of its so-called unions. Um, and again, you know, De Blasio. I'm not a big fan of De Blasio, but what was made clear in the aggression that the NYPD showed toward the elected leadership of the city of New York was that it didn't give a fuck, right? Was that it was willing to do essentially anything, including go on strike, basically without calling it a strike, including dox the you know the family members of the mayor um, if it meant leveraging more power, and that's exactly the way that policing has always worked. Um, there are other examples that I talk about in the book. There are documented examples of the city of Vallejo, California, um, where you know there's a sort of almost a low-scale war between police and city administrators, um, including uh, physical violence uh, to to attempt to push forward. A radical vision of the world of police. Um, policing is anti-democratic, and it's anti—and it's most definitely anti—our understanding of what a good democracy would look like, meaning a participatory democracy, an egalitarian democracy, a labor democracy. Policing is not compatible with any of that. And so, as I argue in the book, you need really, we need to really choose at some point: Do we want that? Do we want democracy—an expansive, you know, democracy—or uh, do we want the police? Because you can't have both.
0: Yeah, word. I mean, I'm no friend of Bill De Blasio, but it was somewhat distressing to see. Oh, yeah, they do whatever the fuck they want, and the mayor can't do shit about it. Cool, great, great world we're living in.
1: Yeah, and they um, and they and they get what they want. They get it from De Blasio too, right? You know, he he knows better than to really fight back. Um, yeah, and and that's the really the you know shocking piece yeah
0: yeah, well, we're about to get an actual fucking cop as the mayor now, so that'll be fun yeah, good see luck how that, see how that plays out. Oh God. so all right, I like to close our episodes on a bit of a call to action. so for folks out there in podcast land listening who you know maybe hated the cops before, but now they hate them in a much smarter way after listening to this interview, and they want to help they want to get involved. What, what can folks do like here and now to try to advance this project?
1: Uh, you know, I mean, this is this is a broad project. I think that involves action on many, many levels. Um, you know, and, and uh, you know, fighting on on different levels. Fighting the prisons is also fighting the police. You know, prison abolitionist organizing is essential. Um, you know, and and really set the pace for a lot of police abolitionist stuff that's happening now. Building communities, building on community organizations, um, building a network. You know, you can you can go out and build a rapid response network in your neighborhood, right? So that everyone on your block is on a text thread or everyone on a five block radius is on a thread where um, not only, you know, you can alert each other if the police are in the neighborhood um, but you can appeal for help if someone is in danger or if there's a conflict or an argument or, you know, someone needs to, um, you know, if someone needs to speak to someone in the neighborhood about who's engaged in maybe like property theft or something like that, but doesn't want to call the police, right? These are the kind of things that people need to be doing on a systematic level, tying those pieces, those little micro pieces into existing neighborhood organizations, broader demands towards cities for funding, for defunding, engaging in supporting street movements, because again, street movements are where this begins. And it's going to take more militant street protests to ensure and focus on, you know, achieving the aims that were laid out last year. Um, And so it's really a multi-pronged process that we really need to, uh, you know, all be participating in. And, and, you know, again, I'm going to in some ways, an optimistic person, because like I like to say, I grew up in the nineties and the nineties were fucking terrible, um yeah, and so like all of a sudden, people are like, "Wow, things are terrible in twenty twenty one and I just look around and I see so much possibility and opportunity um and you know, and so many people uh who don't believe in this system anymore, who don't believe in colonialism and white supremacy and imperialism and, and so I'm super excited, honestly again, we're back to where we started with the zoomers, right I'm excited to see what happens right i'm excited right. to see. Um, you know, younger generations leap beyond their elders um, and build something truly radical and truly liberatory moving forward.
0: I feel the same way. Uh, The the 90s. Can you imagine thinking that was the end of history? Like that's all there's ever going to be for the rest of fucking time. Like that would be so depressing.
1: Yeah, really. I mean, thankfully, I, I don't know how, you know, Francis Fukuyama is still writing books after declaring the end of history and then, you know, history coming in the back door and reminding him that it wasn't.
0: Uh, oh, history is happening, baby. It's happening. All right. Um, I think he actually kind of took that back. I think he had to.
1: He, he did. Like, but oh. like, when you take something back and you're like, oh, I was totally wrong about that. Like, but please listen to this new thing that I want to talk about. Like, <laughs> yeah. Why would I care what you have to say?
0: Yeah, fair enough. Well, you know what, if he wants to join us and be a communist, then he's welcome to, you know, sometimes people take a little time to see the error of their ways.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: <laughs> all all are welcome here. Even guys who used to think that it was the end of <laughs> history. Bad Hegelians, we call them. Yeah. Um. Thank you so much for coming on this podcast, George. Uh, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Um, you want to plug your book a little bit before you go? I'm going to put a link to it in the episode description as well.
1: No, for sure. Thank you so much for having me on. It's, it's been a great conversation. The book technically uh, launches uh, tomorrow. Um, it's called The World Without Police. Of course, you can get it from Verso. So it's also the the August book club selection. So I believe you can still sign up for the book club and get it for uh, for free for the month mm-hmm. of August. Um I'll also say that the you know the uh, the launch event is going to be september first um, and you can look look out for that online or on my website and and, you know, it's going to be an incredible honor because I'm going to be joined by not only Alex Vitale, but also by Robin D.G. Kelly. Um, so two oh, really amazing nice. and, you know, abolitionist inspiration. So um, please join us for that uh, conversation like
2: as likes well. Like scrubbing blood off the ceiling and bleaching another carpet. How my house go on it. Why toy and body don't embody all the life she wanted. The baby just 19. I know I dream all black. I say that everything. I'm mortalized and tweets all caps. They said they found her dead. One girl missing, another one go missing. One girl missing, another, but niggas in the back, quiet as a church mouse. Basement studio when duty calls to get the verse out. I guess the ego hurt now. It's time to go to work. Wow, look at him go. He really doubts to write about me when the world is in smokes, when it's people in trees. When George was begging for his mother, saying he couldn't breathe. He thought to write about me. One girl missing, another one go missing. One girl missing, another one. Yo, but little did I know all my reading would be a there's trans women being murdered And this is all he can offer And this is all y'all receive Distract you from the convo with organizers They talking abolishing the police And this is a new world order We democratizing Amazon We burn down borders This is a new vanguard This is a new vanguard I'm the new vanguard